0: You may be seated and you can take your scriptures tonight and actually turn to the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua chapter 10. I was going to... Give you sort of a survey of the book of Titus as we were making our way, or as we are making our way through the pastoral epistles. And that is where we would be next. However, the Lord laid something on my heart to preach uh, coming from the book of Joshua. And I think it's actually very relevant, and you'll see why in a moment, I think. But the book of Joshua, chapter 10, relates to us, I think, one of the more fascinating stories, as you might see. But of course we have to say I have to say that the book or excuse me the bible itself is a book of not just revelation and not just history but revelation and history meaning that yes there is a lot more going on when you're reading about people and places and things meaning that there's a huge as we like to say meta narrative of scripture and that it's revealing Christ Jesus but at the same time these were real people and places and things that were going on so don't sort of uh, gloss over the fact that these people that you're reading of were real people, that they were, uh, they had uh, hopes and dreams, and they had, they woke up on good sides of the bed, and sometimes they woke up on bad sides of the bed. <laughs> They had literal good days and literal boring days and literal brilliant days. There were things that made their lives be vibrant and worth living. These biblical figures were real. Opposed to all of the sort of the modern liberal scholars that v- reference the Bible as nothing more than uh, legends, as if it's some glorified Aesop's fables, or if it's you know something like Sir Gawain's Green Knight, or some other uh, book of mythology of something that just relays to us tales of stories of people of old. These were real people that really lived this earth that were really alive. And I think that's what makes, for me, uh, not just history, but the Bible come alive is when you realize that all of these dates and names and places and events, these were real things that happened with real people in them, people uh, like you and like me. That's the thing that oftentimes strikes me funny when some people say that they hate learning about history uh, is the fact, which sometimes that can be okay, because sometimes history teachers aren't the most vivacious. But if you can get a vivacious history teacher, usually they will make history come alive by reminding you that these people were just like us. They were individuals with personalities. They were real. That leads me to just share this thing, which this a few years ago, um, archaeologists we were doing some work in the Red Sea, and they actually found remains of some Egyptian soldiers in the Red Sea. Now, that might perk up your interest a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, because it adds loads of historical corroboration to the story from Exodus chapter 13 and 14, when the Israelites are being chased by the Egyptians as they've made their exodus. And they're being chased by uh, the, the army of Pharaoh with all of his chariots and soldiers. And in fact, in this archaeological dig, the, uh, the experts there uncovered thousands of bodies and chariots and artifacts. And in the article talking about this, one of the archaeologists makes this really interesting statement, which I love. This is the archaeologist speaking. He says, The ancient soldiers... Seem to have died on dry ground. Oh, that should make you perk up. The positions of the bodies. And the fact that they were stuck in a vast quantity of clay and rock. Imply that they could have died in a mudslide or a tidal wave. And we all with the scriptures just nod and say, yeah, we knew that already. Um, But I, I, I tell you that story. Because... Whenever I read stories like that, I always have two conflicting emotions. And one of them is that I'm very intrigued by the discovery of history. And by the discovery of something ancient and lost that is now being rediscovered to examine and learn about anew. My sort of um, inner Indiana Jones comes out where I'm just like, yeah, we found this, this awesome piece of story in history. But there's another side of me... That I'm sort of saddened by all the attention that these stories get. Especially by Christians ourselves in the churches. Because we gobble up stories like this where someone in the secular world finds something that we know to be true. And they corroborate scriptures because then it makes what they believe appear relevant for a moment. It's almost as if we are attracted and we might even say addicted to these stories. Because then we can say, aha, see, I told you. I told you I was right. But that should already be our stance anyways. Whether archaeologists uncovered these Egyptian soldiers in the Red Sea or not, we would still believe that story. Or at least I hope we can say that we would believe it. Why? Because it's in the scriptures. Not because they found the remains of Egyptian chariots and Egyptian soldiers. The truthfulness of the Bible stands on itself. Apart from finding evidence for it. Apart from finding artifacts to prove its truthfulness. It's true in and of itself. It's a true book all on its own. And this is what the Bible presumes as you read it. It never seeks to uh, sort of evidence its authority. It just presumes its authority. It presumes that it is the authoritative word of God. Why? Because it comes from God himself. And such is what he seeks to do all throughout his word. God doesn't seek to prove his authority and his sovereignty in verifiable historical accounts. History actually, or actually I would say this, that he assumes his authority and his sovereignty because he is God. He doesn't need history to prove that. And I think such should be our approach to the scriptures. We need not stress ourselves by seeking out codes and artifacts and relics that authenticate the scripture's truth. Rather we should just be proclaiming its truth. Because we know it to be true. We know it to be the authoritative word of God itself. Which is to say this. That faith, our faith in God, is not an archaeological dig to verify its truthfulness. To authenticate its words. We should not need artifacts or relics or signs to tell us that the Bible is true. The Bible is true because God said it is true. I think if we're not careful, sometimes we can have a religion of relics instead of a religion of a redeemer. I was doing some searching this week. Just about all of the relics in churches, not many of them are tradition, but churches of other traditions, they have relics all throughout the world. Of course, the most famous one is the Shroud of Turin. Have you heard of the Shroud of Turin? Where it has like this imprint of Jesus' face on this piece of cloth. Which the church, it hasn't venerated it or it hasn't sort of come out and promoting it. But they haven't taken it away either. So they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Saying that we haven't venerated it but it's still there. So anyways, it's sort of something that people can go to and they can see as if this is something that they can worship. Or I think of one church claims that they have the holy chalice from which Jesus drank at the last supper. The Holy Grail, which makes you probably makes you think of Indiana Jones again, but that 's fine. Um, the Holy Grail that one church claims they have or one German church I found claims that they have or they have a shrine to the three kings the the, the biblical wise men, the magi, which by the way i 'm going to preach on uh, in December is interesting because we don 't know if there were three anyways that 's just tradition and that 's a little a preview for that sermon it 's we think that there 's three. There's no evidence for three other than this shrine in the hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Um, but anyways, I think that's interesting. And then multiple churches, I think this is really fascinating to me. Multiple churches claim that they have pieces of Jesus' cross or nails from Jesus' cross, which there should have only been three, but more than three churches claim that they have these nails. Or sponges when they put the vinegar in or thorns from Jesus' crown of thorns. I just say that to say we are addicted to those sorts of things sometimes. That even when we like stories like this, where they find archaeological digs, we get all excited. We get all amped up. Because it's almost like we're finding another relic. See, look, the Bible's true. Look, even the secular people say it. We are not called to be archaeologists, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors who speak His truth. I often think of the story, which we will get to eventually. I promise. In Mark, in Mark chapter eight, if I love, I can't wait to get to Mark, Mark chapter eight. Mark chapter eight is one of my favorite chapters. But I love in Mark chapter eight because Jesus finishes feeding the four thousand, a separate occasion from the five thousand. He finishes feeding the four thousand, and what do the Pharisees come up and do? What do they come up and ask him? Give us a sign to show us that you are the son of God. <laughs> after the feeding of the four thousand, They clamor for this sign. <laughs> that always strikes me funny. Because the sign was right in front of them. He was the sign that they were looking for. That they needed. He was what they were after. See I think how we defend scripture Either through these evidences that we find in the world, through the relics that the church often worships. I think it reveals the way we view scripture itself and its author. Where these relics end up becoming more important than the redeemer himself, than the word himself. That the truth doesn't stand on its own. That we end up putting more importance on these relics that the church claims that they have. That leads me to Joshua chapter 10. Because Joshua chapter 10 has an interesting story for us. It's another of these miraculous stories that demonstrates God's sovereignty and authority and sufficiency in all of life, over all creation, yes, even men themselves. So let's just start. We're going to read uh, several of these verses. So verse 1 begins this. Now it came to pass when Adoni Zadok... Which I'm just going to call him Donnie from here on out because I don't feel like pronouncing that word every time. Uh, King of Jerusalem had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and her king. So he had done to Ai and her king. And how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. That they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai and all the men thereof were mighty. So this Donnie guy, he starts getting nervous. Because Israel, Joshua and Israel, they come and they take Ai. They overrun it. They take it and they, uh, they are now rulers over that city. Then He had heard rumors of this crazy thing that had happened at Jericho where they just made all the walls fall down by just playing their trumpets and marching around it a couple times. He had heard that story, then they took Ai, and then Gibeon, this other mighty city, has now come in, and they've made peace with Joshua, and it says he gets nervous. Why? Because the men of Gibeon were mighty. You have this mighty Joshua in Israel, and then you have mighty Gibeon. They're forming an alliance, so he starts getting nervous. He starts getting a little bit nervous, because now he feels like there's a target on his back. They're coming for me now. They're coming for me, and now I have to get on my toes. I have to get a little bit defensive, and such is what he does. Look at verse 3. Wherefore, Doni, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Jephiah, king of Lachish, and unto Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me, and help me, that we may smite Gibeon for I have made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. So he calls these other kings together. They form this axis of powers, so to speak. And he says, "Let's team up. Let's go and actually let's attack Gibeon first. Let's have the first strike. They won't be expecting that. Let's get them before they can really be solidified into Joshua's sort of ranks. Let's get them first. And so that is what they do. Look at verse 5. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up. They and all their hosts and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. They surround Gibeon. They begin the siege of the city. And here they are seeking to lay waste to it. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the, camp, uh, to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites, excuse me, that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. So Gibeon here, he calls for help. He calls for aid for his newly allied force and king in Joshua. And Joshua comes to his aid quickly. Following this call from the men of Gibeon. Slack not thy hand. Don't delay. Don't stop. Don't pity around. Hasten to us. Come to us quickly. Then look at verse 9. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly. And went up from Gilgal all night, and the Lord discomfited them before Israel, and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon, and smote them to Ezekiah and unto Makeda. So here, Israel marches, it says, as it says there, they, they are coming up from Gilgal. All night long, they are marching 15 miles uphill to assault this Amorite encampment that's surrounding Gibeon. These five armies are there. They're surrounding the city. And it says that Joshua and his men, they come upon them suddenly. They catch them off guard. They catch them by surprise. This army, these five armies are, as it says, discomfited. Which really just means confused. They are embarrassed by an army that had trekked all night long. And notice though who's doing the actions. Look at verse 10 again. And the Lord discomforted them before Israel. And we could say because following our grammar rules. And the Lord slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. And chased them along the way that goeth up to those cities. And smote them The Lord is the one who is doing these actions here through the Israelites, yes. But the Lord is the one who is doing the actions. He is discomforting them, confusing them, slaying them, chasing them down. And look at, that's exactly what verse 11 says. Look at verse 11. And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel, and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah And they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Ooh, that's interesting. God here is intervening against the enemies of Israel. The enemies of Israel are running away. They're fleeing. They're being embarrassed by this army that had tricked all night long. And here God is intervening for them. He's the one who's getting the victory. Casting all these hailstones upon them. Impeding them, defeating them, utterly destroying them. Their hailstones, the hailstones of God, were mightier than any of the human weaponry that was on display. Such is what we can always say about our God, right? That he always gets the victory and gets the credit for the victory. It wasn't the might of Israel, it was the might of Israel's God. On display here. On display before all of these Amorite armies. But notice verse 12. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ejilon. And the sun stood still. And the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. This is really fascinating stuff. But here we see that Joshua is seeing these armies get away. He's seeing them flee away from them. They're going out of their range. And he recalls the promise of God which had promised him complete and utter victory. And he makes this bold request. Son, stop. Sun, stand still. Moon, pause where you are. Let us have a few more hours in the day so that we can chase down our enemies and overcome them all. Overcome all of them. Now scientists and skeptics seek to explain this event through scientific phenomena and things like that. I tend to hold to the belief that the creator of the stars is powerful enough to stop them if he wants. And everything won't go haywire because he's the creator of them. As much as we think that if something happens that all of the universe is just going to fold in on itself... God can do this. He can stop the stars if he wants to. Because he put them there in the first place. He can stop the sun if he wants to. I guess technically if you want to be scientific. It's stopping the earth because the sun doesn't move. But you forgive me. Anyways. So here we have this scene. Time is freezing still. Because of what Joshua has prayed to his God. Sun stand still. And moon stand Stay where you are. And that's what happened. Look at verse 15. And Joshua returned all and all Israel with him unto the camp to Gilgal. But these five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua saying the five kings are found hid in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua said roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave and set men by it for to keep them. And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass, when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter, till they were consumed, that the rest which remained of them entered into fenced cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace, None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, open the mouth of the cave, and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so, and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, and the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass... When they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel, and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed, be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight." And afterward Joshua smote them, and slew them, and hanged them on five trees, and they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun, that Joshua commanded, and they took them all off the trees, and cast them into the cave, wherein they they had been hid. And laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. Interesting Events. All of these events happen in the course of one day. Because Joshua prayed and made this son stand still. And now these enemies against Israel serve as a warning. Again look at verse 21. And all people returned to the camp. Joshua and Makeda in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. <laughs> Why? Because they saw What happened? They heard rumors about what was going on. About this humiliation of these five Amorite kings at the hands of Joshua and his mighty men of valor. This is an incredible story. A story in which this amazing miracle happened. And a miracle that might actually be too far-fetched. If we think about it too long. How could the sun stand still? But... Wouldn't it be nice if there were proof that existed for this story? As if we could like see uh, that there was proof somehow that we could know that it was really true, that God really did this? Well, what's so fascinating to me is that there actually was at one time. Look at verse 13. Did you notice the phrase there? Where the writer of Joshua, he writes, Is not this written in the book of Jasher? See, the book of Jasher is an interesting um, interesting sort of extra-biblical, meaning it's outside of the biblical narrative, but it was an actual book that once existed. It's called, really, the book of the upright. It's really what that word Jasher means. And in the Hebrew, it was a sort of a, a collection of Hebrew poems and narratives of heroes in the Hebrew nation, of things that they did, of things that they had accomplished. And in this collection, it was said to have had all of these stories of these heroes, and yes, even of this day. It's also referenced, you can just write this down, the same book is referenced in Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 18. But it's this book that is said to have existed one time, but it was lost in what we know of the great fire of the library of Alexandria. Of course, there were thousands and thousands of written books that were lost in that fire. Uh, It's untold how much knowledge of the ancient world uh, we could have had if that fire had not taken place. But this leads us to that question. Do we need evidence of this having taken place in order to believe it? Do we need evidence of a story like this before we come to know that this story is true? Again, I would say that faith in the Christ who saves sinners says no. We don't need that type of evidence. We are not archaeologists. Again, we are ambassadors for the faith. We don't have to prove that the Bible is true, but we can proclaim that it is true. We can proclaim that this thing, this book that we have and that we believe it is truth regardless. Whether they find Noah's ark on Mount Ararat or not. Or whether they ever find Moses' tomb. Or whether, you know, going again on our Indiana Jones trail. Whether they go to the right, you know, warehouse and find the Ark of a Covenant there. You may not know what I'm talking about. But in the movie, Indiana Jones, they find the Ark of the Covenant. And the last scene is the guy wheeling the Ark of the Covenant through that warehouse. I always think of that. Because it's just funny. Um, Anyways, we don't have to have that type of evidence. To believe that this book is true. We can take God's word like children. Remember, let let me take you there. Matthew chapter 18 is... Fascinating, because he has this statement. Matthew 18, he likens those who come to him like little children. Which is a fascinating reference. He says this, Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Such is God's incentive for all of us. That we have the faith of a little child That's the type of faith that we ought to have in our God. It's faith that's just gullible enough to believe the impossible. Why? Because we have a God of the impossible. We have a God who says through him all things are possible to those who believe. This is our greatest comfort. That we have this type of God on our side. A God who can stop the sun if he wants to. If he, can, uh, he can intervene in our lives if he wants to. This is our creator. He condescends to our very creation to give us the impossible. His very righteousness. This is the God that we have. The same God who stopped the sun and the moon and the stars and put them in your place, in their place is the same God who is your father at this very moment. To whom you can cry out like in Romans chapter 8 verse 15. You can cry out Abba Father. That same father is this same God who stopped the moon and the sun. That's how powerful your father is. And this same God is the one who's on your side, who's fighting for you. As it says there, Joshua chapter 10, verse 14, it says, For the Lord fought for Israel. This same God is on your side. He fights for you. He's the same God that guarantees victory before it's even happened. Look at verse 8. I skipped over it purposely to tell you this. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said unto Joshua, fear them not. For I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Before Joshua has even lifted a pinky to attack the Amorites. God has sworn that he will have complete and utter victory. It's already a done deal, Joshua. It's already accomplished. It's already guaranteed that you will have victory over them. And you will smite them down. And there shall not one man stand before thee. Why? Because their God had assured them of victory. This is the same God that we have. We have this same God on our side. Who assures us of victory. We know the end of the story. The end of scriptures can be summarized by two words Jesus won. He wins. The victory is his. We are not fighting this Christian life as if we are trying to achieve victory in ourselves. We are fighting this Christian life from the standpoint of victory already accomplished, already guaranteed. As we looked at this morning, we have an already defeated foe. We don't have to fear him. Fear not. Your enemy will be delivered into you in your hand. There shall not one man stand before thee. This is the promise of the gospel. The promise of the scriptures. That this same God holds everything together. He controls everything. And there is nothing too small for him or too big for him to intervene. Your chaos in this life. Is not too small for God's grace to allay, to soften, to quell. He is the master of all of our impossibilities. He's the master of all the things that we think are too far gone for Him. It's a saying that has been repeated often, and I don't know who came up with it, but man's extremities are God's opportunities. When we come to the very end of our rope, as we might say, when we come to our wits end, that's when God is going to work. Because that's where he is. John Calvin, the great reformer, he writes this, there is no difficulty in his way. God can surmount all obstacles without any labor. (laughs) Because he's sovereign enough to do so. He's the creator and the sustainer, the redeemer, the ruler of everything. And we believe this, not because we have historical evidence for it, but because God's covenant with us assures us of it. You see, this Bible that you hold in front of you, this is all the evidence you will ever need to know that God is true. It's right in front of you. The Pharisees were praying for a miracle and it was standing right in front of them. Oftentimes we pray for a miracle. God, show us a sign. It's right in front of you. This is God's sign. It's the miracle of His Word, which is sufficient, a book which is straight from heaven. A book which has been providentially sustained and protected through all generations. No matter how many times someone has tried to come up and destroy it and eradicate it from the world. It has remained and it will remain. Because God promises that his word will never be taken away. Not one jot or one tittle as he says. Not one little cross mark of a T or dot of an I in our language. (laughs) None of that can pass away until he passes away which means he's not it's not going to ever pass away i loved going to the bible museum in washington dc yesterday i could spend a whole day on floor number 4 which had all of those different translations of the scriptures throughout all ages ancient texts of scriptures All the way to when Martin Luther made his famous German translation of the New Testament. Which sparked and helped to continue to spark the Reformation. Which changed the world. To the very first King James edition of the scriptures. But I don't go to a museum to have my faith confirmed. I go there and appreciate all of that. Knowing what. That the God of everything has made this all possible. We don't need a room to go see it, but it's good to see. It's not evidence that the Bible is true. It's evidence that our God is good. That our God, (laughs) he's invested in our lives. He's invested in us. The museum of the Bible, I think, shows that. It's easy, I think, to let that evidence comfort us instead of the providence of God comfort us. But God's providence will always be there. Relics can burn up. Relics can wash away. Just think about what happened, uh, I think it was last year, right? When the famous Notre Dame burned. Sad, yes, Because it was a feat of architectural marvel and had so much meaning and significance to thousands of people. But even as a relic like that burns, we know that our God is still there. He doesn't burn with a relic, He doesn't fade away with any shroud that we might seek to pursue as if it's true and holy and good. He is true regardless. He is true always and this is our chiefest comfort. That our God is a God of miracles, yes, but he's also a God of mercy. He's a God who is invested and interested in our our lives and in his glory. This is our source of confidence this is the God of the word that has sought to come down and save us and redeem us. This very God who can stop stars and the moon in its tracks. This is our confidence. We can be confident ambassadors. Not because we can prove our message. But because we know the person who has given us this message. That's the job of an ambassador, right? He doesn't seek to prove the thing that he's saying. He just says what he's supposed to say. Such is our job. Our job as his ambassadors. Our religion is not a religion of trinkets and relics. It's a religion of a person. A person who saves us. By his very blood. A person who has come to take your place. To stand in your stead on a cross that you and I deserved. This is our religion. It's a religion of a person who took all of the sins of the world on his shoulders. Why could he take all the sins of the world on his shoulders? Because he was also the God that could sustain the universe in the palm of his hand. And his back was sovereign enough and strong enough and big enough for all the sins of the world. He died for you. And he died for me. I read this and I was reading this and I thought of that scene. From John chapter 20. Remember um, it's in the upper room and the, all the disciples are there after the crucifixion. Well, let, me, let me read it. John chapter 20 verse 24. I always do that. I say that so often. I try and like just pretend that I have all the Bible memorized. Which I don't. Surprisingly. And I don't want to mess it up. So here's John chapter 20, verse 24. This is the scene of doubting Thomas, which is a misnomer because he wasn't the only doubting disciple, but alas, he has been referenced throughout all of history now as the one who doubted. But it says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, this is verse 24, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side. I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Every time... You open this Bible. You are repeating this scene. He's letting you, through faith, see his wounds, and see his hands, and see his side, and see his thorn-pierced brow. We see it through faith. Not through evidences, not through material relics or ritual rites, but through faith in a word that has been given to us by the hand of God himself. Blessed are they who believe without having seen, without having touched, without having physically been there. Blessed are those who believe. We trust and believe not because we have touched or seen, but because we have faith in this God who has given us his word. A word straight from heaven. A word from heaven for our deliverance. A word from the God of all creation. The God of everything. The God of the moon and the sun and the stars and the planets and the galaxies that we don't even know exist. As the God of you and me. As the God who ascended the cross to take the death that you and I deserved. This, this is our religion. Not of trinkets, not of relics, but of this person. Let us pray.